Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate, And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends or your family and with people you know or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. Today, ladies and gentlemen, I am joined by my guest, Dr. Sherry Cooper, who is an economist, a sought-after speaker, a writer, and advisor, renowned for her ability to simplify and demystify the complex subjects of economics and finance. Now, Dr. Cooper's been on the RAIN stage a few times in the past, but she is the chief economist of Dominion Lending Services today, which is Canada's leading mortgage and leasing company. She's an award-winning authority on finance and economics. She is also TMX industry professor at DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. She's been named the megawatt celebrity economist by Canada's National's newspapers and has been repeatedly cited as one of the most influential women in Canada. She served as chief economist and executive vice president of BMO Financial Group. And when she was there, she was responsible for global economic and financial forecasting, as well as country risk and industry risk analysis. She's well known as a media commentator. She's just written her third book, The New Retirement, How It Will Change Our Future, which was a blockbuster bestseller, by the way. Dr. Cooper has an MA and PhD in economics from the University of Pittsburgh. She began her career at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C., where she worked very closely with then-chairman Paul Volcker and subsequently joined the Federal National Mortgage Association, Fannie Mae, as Director of Financial Economics. So we're going to get a lot more into who Dr. Sherry Cooper is and uh, an interesting conversation, to say the least. Listen in. 
Dr. Sherry Cooper, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Man, am I ever excited to have you on the show. You've been on the rain stage years in the past, but welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Now, Sherry, you have been on the rain stage in the past. You're an economist, but for those of you, uh, for the listeners who don't know you, uh, why don't we talk a little bit about who Dr. Sherry Cooper is and uh, what do you do? I know right now you're an economist with Dominion Lending Centers, and we just had a great conversation with Gary Morris, as a, as a matter of fact. But why don't we give a little bit of background? Who is Dr. Sherry Cooper and what do you do? Okay, well, uh, I'm an economist, of course, and that's how most people know me. But um, I was uh, born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, and um, educated in the U.S. I went, uh, my first job out of graduate school was um, with the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C. Fabulous, fabulous time there. Um, Really enjoyed policy and uh, definitely didn't want to be an academic, even though I did get a PhD. And I um, had a ball in Washington, had Potomac fever, meaning that, you know, you get all caught up in the excitement of U.S. policy. And I worked very closely with the then chairman, Paul Volcker. Then I went to work at Fannie Mae in the U.S., in Washington, uh, as director of financial economics. And for those who don't know, Fannie Mae stands for, it's the equivalent of the Canadian CMHC. It's the Federal National Mortgage Association. And then lo and behold, um, I came to Canada. I had never been to Toronto before, but my then husband had a job offer in Toronto. And um, we had a two-year-old son. Both of us were interested in leaving Washington and we thought we were headed for Wall Street. But given um, that he had an opportunity in Toronto um, with the Bank of Montreal, as as fate would have it, it um, they gave him a month for me to do a quick job search. And I met the CEO of uh, then Nesbitt Thompson and the CEO of then Burns Fry got two job offers and uh, went to work. Uh, with Burns Fry. And I told them, well, I told my husband, I would try it for a year. And that was more than 30 years ago. (laughs) So So here you are. (laughs) I guess I liked it. But I I mean, seriously, I knew nothing about the Canadian economy because why wouldn't an American economist know about the Canadian economy? Uh, But I was a financial economist at a time when interest rates were coming off their all-time historic peaks. And so Bay Street had never had a Fed economist. And so Canada was very good to me. I mean, I I just loved it from the moment I arrived and uh, really love markets, uh, financial markets. And of course, what sector is more interest sensitive than real estate? None. Mm-hmm. more economically sensitive than real estate, none. So I've always had, uh, you know, a tremendous interest in the real estate sector. So, and and then, you know, count forward to the mid-90s 
Burns Fry was such a fun place. It was a privately held partnership. Uh, we sold ourselves to Security Pacific. Then we sold ourselves, well, Security Pacific was bought by Bank of America. Bank of America decided they didn't want a Canadian investment dealer, so we bought ourselves back. And then in the mid-90s, sold ourselves to the Bank of Montreal. By that time, I was um, remarried, divorced and remarried, and... Uh, my ex-husband was the chief economist of the Bank of Montreal. So it was a little weird. Um, and uh, funny, I became the chief economist of, of what they called um, Burns, uh, Nesbitt Burns. Nesbitt Burns, sure, yeah. Anyway, um, my ex left the bank, nothing to do with me, but left the bank. And then, you know, ultimately I became chief economist of uh, Bank of Montreal. And was there for 20 years. Um, and subsequently, I retired from the bank in 2013. And since then, not long after that, I was doing a whole bunch of things for a whole bunch of people. And then I got a call from Gary Morris. Frankly, I had never heard of Dominion Lending Centers. Isn't that, inter isn't that interesting? Wow. Yeah. Well, how would I? You know, yeah. I mean, think about it. I mean, if you are a bank employee, especially I was the executive vice president, you do all your banking with BMO. And by then, I didn't need a mortgage. So I didn't, you know, there I was had no, no re idea. Yeah, no reason for it to show up in your ecosystem at that time. Right, right. Um, but of course, um, the whole mortgage brokerage industry has just boomed ever since um, DLC, it's about 14 years old, I think. Mm -hmm. And certainly in the last 10 years, it's been booming. So mm -hmm. it is a much bigger force now in the Canadian real estate world uh, than mortgage brokers used to be. But I love the industry because it reminds me of Burns Fry. It's much more entrepreneurial than the big bureaucratic bank. The bank was always little stuffy for me. <laughs> you now, think? <laughs> I mean, I, I was the first woman to wear pantsuits on the 68th floor. Like, how shocking is that? But back in 1994, I guess that was pretty shocking. And I did have clothes that weren't black, brown, or navy. And that was pretty shocking, too. Well, yeah. you know, I you, we we've had you on the stage. I've seen you speak a number of times, just in following your you a little bit. You're definitely an independent thinker, and you're pretty pragmatic in your thinking. But you're also a bit of a trailblazer. I see that in in even in your personality type, in in terms of just the the character, I guess, if you will, which is a very which I'm saying is a very positive thing. So it doesn't surprise me that you share a story about showing up, you know, in a pantsuit, you know, being the the lead of that. That's kind of in character with who you are and and what your values are. Yeah, exactly. And I tell it as I see it, and that sometimes isn't politically the way I should speak in a place like like a big Canadian bank. Right. Um, it was a great, you know, I think actually it's been on balance of an advantage, and a plus in my career, because I try very hard to make in economics as interesting as it really is, because it affects all of us. Um, but, you know, lots of economists are very dry 
you know, very numbers oriented and kind of never to, you know, never to extreme in any direction. And, you know, we've been through so many periods of crisis. I mean, nothing, fortunately, like what we're experiencing now, but we've certainly had, you know, the stock market collapse in 87, and we've had all kinds of mini problems. And in Canada, of course, we've had recessions, we've had budget, huge federal budget issues, uh, and then the, the financial crisis, and now this one. And it's funny, all through my career, especially at the bank, um, initially with the financial crisis, I was banging on the table about how serious it was before Lehman Brothers went under. And I was um, told by the powers that be that I was scaring people, you know, like, calm down, be quiet. And then in uh, March of... Um, of uh, 2009, I said, the worst is over. And then I was told that I'm, I'm much too optimistic, you know, be quiet. And so I, that's one thing I'm not good at is being quiet. So, um, you know, I, I have insisted upon telling it as I see it, as opposed to either sugarcoating or, or it being overly cautious. I guess with that thought process, though, Sherry, you have to also be, I guess, be prepared to be wrong. I mean, you're an economist, you're a pragmatic thinker, you look at all the stuff. And and so you're saying you're calling it like you see it. But, you, you know, what I, my experience with many economists, my observation is, and, and certainly some experience because we've had economists on our stage uh, speaking to the community, is that they're, you know, they're, they're always hedging their bet. Like they're always saying, eh, you know, they're, they're saying it could be this or it could be that, you know, on the one hand, on, on the, the one hand, hand, on the other hand, you know, famous economist stuff. But when you take a stand like you do, which is kind of reputationally how you're, you know, how you're you're seen, uh, you have to be prepared to say, yeah, OK, I was wrong, you know, or yeah. not. Right. Some version of that. Absolutely. And, and a lot of it is opinion um, because it is very fundamentally based on your value system. Um, like right now, as just to take an example, sure. there are, especially in the U.S., there are people screaming for open up, open up, open up, and it, and it's become very much political, you know, with the idiotic president of the United States um, refusing to wear a face mask. So uh, you've just heard my um, political view of Donald Trump. <laughs> um, but, I, I picked up on that, Sherry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's, it is very much a value system. And what is it that you value more, human life or, you know, economic prosperity? And just putting it that way you can see why I'm very glad to be a Canadian by choice. Um, and, and, you know, not that, I mean, I still file my U.S. taxes. My whole family lives in the United States. My son and his family live in New York. My mom's in Florida. You know, I mean, I have huge connections. 
And I'm appalled and horrified by what what's happening. And I'm I really for all that you can criticize Canada, I think we've handled this pretty well. You know, a very difficult situation, but if you look at all of the numbers, our incidence rates, our morbidity rates, we we have handled this far, far better. Toronto's a big, dense city, and we have nowhere near the incidence of COVID. Um, as the United States, you know, per 100,000 people. So, um, it, again, it's not just economics, but it's the whole social mindset and milieu of the country. So let's talk a little bit about economy and, and how you see things going forward. I mean, arguably, and I don't want to even say arguably, I mean, the government's done what the government's done. The feds have done what they've done. Uh, our our leadership has responded the way the I think at this point that they needed to they've they've you know they've put capital into the into you know they've moved money into the economy uh, they're keeping things suspended if you will right now helicopter whatever phrases people want to use for it Sherry but but ultimately when we look at where the economy is going forward we have to consider you know, what, what, what is it going to look like? You know, from my perspective, I look at it and I go, well, how do we take an economy and make it work when we actually right now don't have people working? We're paying people. So they're surviving. Great. But that doesn't drive an economy. Small businesses are certainly shutting down. There's, you know, horrific numbers and there's some version of horrific numbers of businesses that will never start again. Uh, we're looking at significant debt loads, not only as a country or, you know, municipally, you know, provincially, but as, as people. Uh, an interesting conversation that I listened in on with Pierre, uh, I never pronounced his name, last name right, Pierre Pouvier, who's, of course, was talking to CMHC, uh, the head of CMHC, and they were talking about what is the impact of consumer, a, a, a lack of consumer confidence because the debt load is expected to exceed 200%. Now, I don't know if that's a that's in my memory of that particular conversation, which you know, CMAC said the challenge with that is going to be is that people are servicing debt. So they're not going to be able to go out and buy like they bought in the past, which means the economy will stay weaker. So that's that's kind that of was true before the pandemic. Mm. I mean, and we had full employment. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, I think too much is made of the household debt level. So do I, by the way. So do I. But I'm just I'm I'm, I'm actually just. It was just a point of conversation, I guess, and that that's some of the conversation that I'm hearing from politicians and, and some of the things that are going on. I'd like to hear from your perspective, kind of what do you see as an economist over the next year, two years, three years? What do you have a view that you're starting to put together? Well, sure. I, I mean, clearly, this has been a medically induced economic coma. Um, we just literally shut things down. And so the good news is that it's nothing inherent in the economy itself that caused this recession. Um, But it is a recession by any stretch. And the question then is how quickly can we come out of it? And that to me is all about the virus. It's not about what 
the economy itself would do. If we could just open things up, like flip a switch, and the sooner we do that, the quicker the economy will rebound. But we can't do that because the fear is this potential second wave or another wave. And, you know, how long will it take for us to come out of this depends very much on, on what happens with the virus. And none of us know. I mean, even those who are virologists and epidemiologists and experts in it don't know. So um, I think that it's in Canada's nature to be relatively cautious about it. Um, but certainly in the provinces that have not been as hard hit as Ontario and, and Quebec, which is the hardest hit by far, um, things are opening up. Um, but we also are impacted by the global economy, and the global economy is going to suffer its worst second quarter in, in the history of the data. Canada has gotten a double whammy because of the oil crisis. Uh, oil prices did plunge, you know, minus $20 a barrel, $40 a barrel. But we've recovered. It's now at about $32 a barrel, which isn't bad, um, which is very helpful. But um, I guess I'm with um, in the Stephen Paulo's camp that I'm less pessimistic than a lot of other people. I don't think that this is going to be um, a forever recession, but it's certainly going to, you know, second quarter numbers are going to look terrible. They have already what we've seen look terrible. They're always, they're going to break every record, you know, worse this, worse that. And then when what uh, happens in the third and fourth quarter is going to depend on whether or not we get a second wave. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea whether we will or we won't. And of course, there's that's the risk. As we move into next year, I think we're going to see positive growth and probably pretty strong growth. But it's still going to take until 2022 to get back to where we started at you know, in the first quarter of this year. And for Canada, the first quarter wasn't great because mainly because of oil. Yeah, so, oil, oil and gas pipelines, those still continue to be controversial kind of subjects. Doesn't seem enough decisions have been made around that uh, seemingly up front. You know, to your point, uh, how Canada responds to COVID. I mean, there's still lots of argument for is COVID even what it is made out to be? That's, I'm not here to debate that at all with you because it is what it is. We're dealing with it, whether it's whether it is real or not as real or. Uh, How can it not be real when almost a hundred thousand people have died in the United States? Well, once again, that that gets into a whole different debate. But to me, it's it, it's regardless of it, if it is or not, we're at the effects of it economically, and we have to say, okay, well, how do we make decisions going forward? And and that's really the 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 question because we're dealing with what we're dealing with, right? And then we we're waiting for many are waiting for a government to make some decisions in even opening the economy back up and getting things back to work, getting people working again, and how do we get business back engaged and all those conversations. But when you look at what's happening with uh, the economy today, 
you know, for example, interest rates. There's still lots of controversy around interest rates. Will they will they actually go lower? Will the banks actually, you know, thin out the spread that they've got? Uh, do, where do you see interest rates going? Because in, in this particular, lots of listeners uh, are real estate focused. Not all are by any stretch of the imagination. But where, where do we look at? Where do you see interest rates kind of going to over the next couple of years or even the year? I mean, and those are tough I think they're going to stay low. Yeah. Um, I I don't think they're going to fall a lot further when you've got, you know, the five-year bond yield is at 38 basis points and the 10-year government bond yield is at 58 basis points. I don't think we're going to see negative government bond yields. Um, And mortgage rates are already quite low, and I I think they'll remain low. Now, um, that's because I think that the central bank will do whatever it takes to minimize the number of unnecessary insolvencies, bankruptcies, et cetera, both in terms of households as well as businesses. Even doing that, and the feds, the federal government the same, even doing that though, unfortunately, they're there were players that were kind of hanging on by their fingernails before this happened, and they're not going to survive. And we've already seen some big brand names from Hertz to uh, Neiman Marcus, J. Crew, and the list goes on that um, can't survive or won't survive in the current form. They'll need to restructure, they'll be closing stores, they'll, they'll be serious damage. But um, hopefully, and we're already seeing it, there'll be some real winners in this and uh, big success stories and new companies that, that form and that take advantage of this whole new world of the way we can communicate. I think that this accelerates digitization. It increases the need for 5G. It absolutely um, has a very strong effect on how people entertain themselves, how we educate, how we uh, communicate. And on and on. I mean, for years and years and years, I've been told that I wouldn't have to run all over creation giving speeches, that I could be doing it remotely. And it wasn't until now that I finally am doing it remotely. Well, it's interesting. We, you know, you talk. So there's lots of conversation in that. And I think what's interesting about what you just said, you know, that one of the many, many terms that are, you know, starting to emerge is, you know, pivot, your ability to pivot. You know, that pivot word has become a big thing. You know, I I know with Rain, with the Real Estate Investment Network, we just literally came off a one and a half day event. We had hundreds of people. We had breakout rooms. Gary Morris was one of our keynote speakers, but we had many speakers that were involved. We talked about uh, a range of topics uh, also looked at what we see going forward economically and talked about that. And of course, we're a national organization. So we're talking to, you know, different provinces. And and so, but the point is, is that we had hundreds of people that were engaged for three hours on Friday night and eight hours on Saturday. And we had almost no drop-off in terms of people there. So they're interactive. They would go to this breakout room, that breakout room. So that's all to say this, Sherry, is that to your point is that 
this virtual world that's coming out of this, I think, is we're only in the infancy infancy of what it's going to turn out to be. Exactly. You know, and so exactly. I, I see some big wins. My concern does because I know also economically what small business provides for you know jobs, taxes. You know, when I look at small businesses in any city, think about the business tax. Think about the uh, the employment that they they drive. Um, you know, I own a small business in Alberta, a couple of retail stores uh, in the in the skating industry. So hockey, figure skating, that kind of thing. They're specialty shops. I've had them for 35 years. They're shut down. And and right now, ice rinks are shut down. And in you know Quebec, I think, is not even putting ice in in the province. So that takes out a whole industry of recreational sport. And for how long, we don't know. But I'm, I'm thinking, wow, like that's just one industry. And it's like, this is that's a that in itself is a big impact. Now I don't know if I can pivot with my stores in Alberta, depending on what decisions are made by our uh, our government. But ultimately, there's probably hundreds of me's out there. Now I'll have to at some point I've got a burn rate, you know. So one of the annoying comments for me right now is people that are go, making this comment that you know the Warren Buffett quote, you know, you find out who's swimming naked when the tide goes out, and I kind of get offended by that because. I've been successfully running that business for 35 years. I don't plan forever for a multi-month shutdown. And at some point, I have to look at it economically and go, my burn rate you know, is X amount of dollars every month with no doors open, the lights off, no staff, but I still have a burn rate. Now, at some point, I have to look at it and go from a business-only point of view, Okay, can I number one? How for how long do I risk carrying it? So, you know, if I'm if my burn rate on this small business is twenty five grand a month, how long do I let that money burn, not knowing if we're even going to open? So, do I say do I shut it down? Now, I'm only using myself as an example because I know that there's hundreds of small business owners out there that are having no, to make the same. You're absolutely right, and that's why the government is trying to help businesses just take some of the burden off, like mm -hmm. to help with the rent mm -hmm. or a portion of the rent sure. or help with keeping people on your payroll. Um, and how effectively they do that is absolutely paramount to coming through this. Mm -hmm. The other part of it is at least you're in a, in a sector where there's no reason why they can't open the rink. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's out. It's like simulated outdoors, and it's the one of the healthiest things that they could open. So, um, but you need you need a strong lobby for, with the government to get that happening. <laughs> I, I have a friend who's very involved globally in the in the health club industry, and imagine with the health clubs. I mean, the, you know, the traditional kind of gyms. Holy cow, you know. Well, Gary owns gyms. Gary's Gary owns gyms. He's having exactly the same problem, right? Yeah, so. yeah. That's a tough one. Very yeah. tough. So when you look at, let's go back. And so we digress a little bit, but I think it's, these are all important conversations to have when we look at what what's happening economically. We've got those concerns. We're trying to say, you know, how do we support people in making decisions? And how do we have them, how do we provide them, you as an economist, uh, provide a perspective that doesn't, you know, it's not rose-colored glasses, but how do people kind of 
look forward? How do they make decisions going forward when we look at an economy? And and it's interesting to hear your perspective and view of that part of it. Um, we talk about interest rates. Do you see what do you see in housing? Like because that's really one of your areas of expertise. Is how do you see the housing market across Canada? I mean, we've got apparently we're going to continue good, strong immigration. Awesome. I think that's that's a that's a still a good move, but I don't know what that's going to entail or what it means. Well, and it's and right now there is no immigration. Exactly. And that that has a, a big impact very quickly, especially in places like um, Toronto and its its surrounding area and Vancouver and its surrounding areas. Im- immigrants are a major source of not just housing investment, but also um, the rental market. And there's no um, tourism either. So Airbnb and the short-term rentals have now become vacant. And that pool of of condos mainly is going to go back into the long-term market or going to be for sale. So it's put, um, no question, it's put downward pressure on housing. And, you know, we've seen just in the data available for April that House home sales nationally have fallen 58%. New listings have fallen 56%. So the price effect has been pretty minimal so far. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I clearly, this disrupts. It, it also changes the technology of the industry um, with far, far better use of, um, of, of the internet for information and um, lots of very cool things happening in terms of the uh, 3D viewing Mm -hmm. of properties and also even using technology to show a um, staged property without having to spend the money staging it or showing the property if it were renovated or if it, you know, had a different decor, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, there's some really positive things that can be done with that too. I think the housing market is going to slow. It already has slowed. I think that um, the good news is that we went into the spring market in in Montreal, in Ontario, in, I mean, in Ottawa, and in the GTA, the GBA, it was going to be a record spring. So we went in very strong. And there'll be pent-up demand when this is all over. But it's going to take time. And so, you know, whether that pent-up demand shows up in the fall or not, I think we'll have more to do with whether or not we get a second wave uh, than, than anything else. And kids have got to go back to school so their parents can go to work. And that's another major factor. And most provinces have shut down their summer camps, and that makes it even more difficult. I mean, I, I'll tell you, I know just from my my son and his family, like they they both are working from home, living in a suburb of New York City. Um, and that's the good news, but they have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old who are not in school. Mm-hmm. So how did and their nanny is isolating? So how does that work? I mean, it's a real challenge. And parents with young kids are going nuts. 
and you sort of have to take turns and, and they both have very demanding jobs where they need to be on. So the kids have like scheduled everything and they even go out to the backyard for recess. But I mean, these, this is like, this is a first world problem. I mean, they have a home, they have a yard, they're in good shape. They have jobs. Imagine all the people that are so much less fortunate. I mean, a lot of people can't work from home. Even like, you know, dentists. I mean, it's not just underprivileged people that can't work from home. Well, 100%. And, and that's what's really, some of it's quite frightening in terms of when you get outside of even North America. And, and we could, I mean, there's a whole conversation around the disconnect and the breakdown of supply chain and, and what right. the, what the impact of that's going to be. I want to get into a, a little bit of politics, but not just yet. I, there's a couple of things I would like to hear your view on in terms of what the U S and China is doing versus what Canada is doing with China. I mean, you know, I mean, we're a population of 36 million. I mean, we're, we're not even a rounding error on, on somebody's, you know, books in, in any other country. I mean, we're, we're just not that big, but. Uh, but China pays an awful lot of attention to us considering. Oh, of course they do. You know, and I think it's wide open spaces and all the rest of it. I think it's great. But now here's the, you know, it's a political move. And I think anyways, my view of the world, which is, you know, Trump is going, you know, he's, he's, be, he's trying to bully China. That's what my, you know, to summate, you know, the summation of that, you know, you're trying to be a bully. You're trying to be a hard ass. Got it. Justin Trudeau is not being that he's actually trying to open up the doors. Now, that may be a really smart political move. Maybe, you know, those are things that we have to consider and the impact on the supply chain. This goes back to supply chain, because ultimately, until we start doing stuff, manufacturing things back in Canada, which is going to take a long time to get that back and that moving. In the meantime, China's a big supplier. We, I mean, we import a lot of stuff out of China. Right. Um, but because of what we've learned about how vulnerable we are, and I don't mean we, Canada, I mean we, the world, um, to not being self-sufficient in some essential products, I think that we will see uh, less globalization of manufacturing for essential products and more self-sufficiency, which will open up some opportunities. Trump right now, you know, it wasn't long ago, it was in late January where he was lauding uh, China for its transparency and how well it handled COVID. He just needs to blame the, the enormous missteps in the United States on somebody else. I mean, it's all, it's all about his being reelected. So uh, I think he actually likes um, Hu Jinping. And I think that, I mean, he likes Xi because he wants to do business with Xi. Mm-hmm. He would love to build, you know, Trump Towers all over China. And it's all about his own personal well-being. He's, he's all he's thinking about is getting reelected and maintaining his, his wealth. And his kids well. Yeah, and and there, you know, the leadership around the world is always interesting. Party aside, you know, we we do a segment called "What's Behind the Curtain," so we're always looking at, you know, what what is what is the reality versus what is the headline. We're always taking mainstream media in terms of what their message that they're putting out there and digging into it, so that investors can make really great decisions. Now, having said that, 
we time and time again, every government, I don't care if it's conservative or liberal or NDP, it's politics over policy far too often. And I mean, Trump is the epitome of that conversation. And and so so there's all those in, the people who love Trump, people who hate him, people who love uh, Trudeau, people who hate him. But ultimately, it's what are the, what is the government doing? Is it is are they really concerned with policy and the decisions they're making, or is it politics? And so we can get into that all day long. But um, I I see the moves that are I, I shouldn't say I see my version of what I see in terms of moves politically being made. I, which I think could be smart. Uh, China is a big thing. You know, part of our economy still relies on a consistent and dependable supply chain. That's been disrupted. And that's a significant, that could be, play out as a significant, we talk about food as the one obvious one, uh, that's already being impacted. But we're, you know, in the conversation I was having, for example, with uh, Ben Meyer on the weekend, and, you know, he really pays attention to pre-built and stuff that's going on in downtown Toronto. You know, how does a builder in Toronto uh, really plan a project when he's, you know, he can be halfway through it and go, I, I've got, I can't get the parts I need. I can't get the supplies and materials that I need. That could yeah, cause a problem. Yeah. I mean, we, I know about that firsthand because we were in the middle of a renovation when this all started. Mm-hmm. So, and so we're still waiting for lots of stuff yeah. that even things that have to come from Montreal, let alone from Wisconsin. Outside the country. Yeah. What yeah. do you see, uh, Sherry, when we talk about, you know, housing market, you know, there's a, there's, we're noticing in our industry of real estate investment where our community is going to the banks and the banks are really, have really tightened up a lot. They're, you know, there's, you know, it's not, it's very difficult to get mortgages and especially difficult to get mortgages in the world of real estate investing, which is a challenge because of course we also at times have a pretty strong shortage depending on where you are in, in rental housing. So what do you see the banks doing? Do you, uh, what's kind of their thought process behind this tightening up? I know it's risk management and all the rest of it, but is there something you can provide us for insights from how the bank is actually viewing what's going on as a, in the in investment side of things? Well, think of, think of the position the banks are in. And by that, I mean the big six banks. Um, they've become an arm of the federal government. They have been told this is what you're going to do. You're going to defer mortgages for up to six months. You're going to allow the corporate world and the the uh, households of Canada, if they have lines of credit, you're going to allow them to max them out, whether you like it or not. Um, you're going to be lenient in terms of any um, credit card related issues. And you're going to be um, watched by OSPI to make sure that you aren't making this recession any worse than it needs to be. And you're going to take a hit, which we're going to see tomorrow, starting tomorrow, in bank earnings, big time. Bank earnings are going to be down um, by record amounts because of increasing loan loss reserves and massive declines in revenues because all that mortgage, all those mortgage payments aren't happening. Now the banks will make it up because they're amortizing the interest that has been lost and, and extending 
the mortgages. But still, you know, for a six month period, they're not going to get that revenue. And all these small businesses that depend on the banks, that revenue, which has been in deposits even, have dried up. So, and people who aren't getting paid, those automatic deposit payments have dried up. So the banks are, and, and the banks have all promised they're not going to cut their dividends because they see themselves as a Canadian utility, really. Because people like me and probably you and other investors have, and lots of retirees, have a lot of their nest egg in bank stocks and, and depend on those dividends to live. So what choice do they have but to try to mitigate the risk? And one way would be at the margin, don't make loans that they think might be risky. And given what might well happen in the rental space where rents are gonna decline in places like the big cities, that it's just a no brainer that they're going to uh, be very cautious. And that's where the rest of the industry is, is gonna, they're the ones that if they are able to adapt, will indeed take more market share because the banks will let them take more market share and the mortgage brokers are gonna help them take more, more market share. So, and, and the Bank of Canada is buying mortgage-backed securities like crazy, everything else as well. I mean, they're buying everything, corporate bonds, government bonds, provincial bonds, bankers' acceptances. And so the, the alternative lenders and the private money will, will certainly garner market share from the big banks. And that's why even the Royal Bank stock price has plummeted and all the other banks even more so. When you look at an economy, Sherry, you know, when I when I look at what's happening, there's a there's some argument that GDP will actually still it'll show up as a, a very solid number. But that's, of course, it's a little bit misstated because it's really supported by nothing but government capital flowing into the marketplace. and ultimately that's not sustainable at some point when that comes off the rails it's going to be a very significant drop economically when the because at some point I, i'm assuming that the government's going to have to quit printing money you know they're going to have to quit doling it out they, they got to get things fired up at some point i think there's a strong argument for hyperinflation or at least for some areas of hyperinflation do you see that as well well, that's what I mean. That's what we learn is that printing money, which is basically just the central bank financing the federal government's budget deficits, mm -hmm. which is certainly what every central bank in the world is doing right now, mm -hmm. that that ultimately leads to hyperinflation. But that only happens when the economy is going enough that you get people that you get um, businesses able to raise prices and people able to get higher wages to begin to pay those prices. And, and so it feeds into the, you know, cost push and demand pull inflation. 
we have, we're nowhere near that right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody's raising prices. My God, it's like nobody's spending any money. So who <laughs> in the world is going to raise their price? Except for things like Purell or Lysol or, you know, those things. Yes. But those are pretty limited this stage. So I think it's not until unemployment falls and spending increases by the private sector enough. Uh, Before that, we're going to have deflationary pressures, which is what we've already seen. Yeah, we're seeing definitely some deflationary. And I think there's going to be a mix of both and, and how that all unfolds over the coming months is yet to be seen. I feel like, and and maybe because you're in it, um, I feel like we've been slow to get, it's been slow for data to come out. Like, it's like, whether it be the feds or the provincial governments, um, the banks, everybody's being a little bit tentative about releasing data. That's what it feels like to me. Uh, to, right. and, and, and I'm assuming that that's a responsible thing to do that, you know, you don't want to put that, you, there's some things that you just don't want to have out in mainstream uh, because out of context, it could really cause some anxiety with people. And they're already living in this kind of world of anxiety and worry and concern. And do I have a job? And no, I don't have a job. And what happens when Unless I... Unless you're Evans at all. And then you want to scare people to death for some. <laughs> so, yeah. But, well, and there, I mean, there's a, certainly a strong argument for all of this whole fear-mongering and that is going on in the world today on both sides of the equation, uh, both sides of the argument. And, you know, from my perspective, uh, you know, I think there's when I'm working with the community, I'm saying to, you know, our community, you have to just engage in critical thinking. At some point, you're going to have to choose a path and you're going to have to make decisions based on what you believe, what you see the future as. So I always look at my job is to give people enough information that they can make an educated decision. Uh, you know, uh, you, you get reliable information, something that makes sense. And and certainly having credible individuals like you, uh, access to you, and and I appreciate that, is, is have a view of the world, you know, that you can start to make decisions based on critical thinking. You know, I mean, the way you make money is to be bold when everyone else is fearful, and fearful when everyone else is bullish. Sure. So um, in that regard, there's there are opportunities, no question. I mean, there are going to be people out there who bought a property before they sold and they need to get out from under. Um, and so cash is king. And anybody who's got the wherewithal to, to finance, whether it's through borrowing or otherwise, um, there will be opportunities. I mean, land is finite. I mean, I don't need to tell you. I mean, that's the whole real estate argument. Mm-hmm. And uh, Canada will continue to attract people from all over the world. It's just not right now. And, you know, we'll get through this. It's just, it's a very difficult time. It is and- a very difficult time. Let me ask you this question. Totally, it's not random, but it's it, you know it's off a little bit off topic what we have been talking about. But when we look at the economy, when we look and we talk hyperinflation or or deflation, there's also lots of arguments out there right now for fiat currencies being kind of reset and and you know going to you know going back to a gold standard, you know having uh, gold and silver and you know of course cryptocurrencies. 
what's your thought process on that, Cherry? What in in your world that you live in does that stuff show up for you? Those kind of kind of conversations you have a view of that world? Well, gold, no way, because it's finite and it, it's um, you can't function in a world where you need a central bank able to do what it's doing right now. Imagine if none of the central banks were doing what they're doing. It would be calamitous, mm. literally yeah. calamitous. Um, I don't even want to think about what it would be like because the dominoes would all fall. And it, it's similar to the um, financial crisis in 07, 08, 09. If the central banks hadn't been there, it would have been not so much in Canada, but we, you know, we are impacted by what happens in the United States and it would have been disaster. Um, so gold can't, it wouldn't work. And, um, you know, I've been impressed by just how solid the Canadian dollar has been considering. Mm -hmm. And especially with respect to the US dollar, which has been strong. So, and there's no, there's no global appetite for cooperation, not even in the EU, let alone in, you know, the rest of the world, including the EU. So the United States isn't going to agree to anything with anybody. I mean, in fact, what's scary is Trump is even dropping out of, you know, arms control agreements. I mean, he, which is very scary because that's just what we need is a cold war, right? Or let or a hot war. Mm -hmm. But the whole notion of, you know, like the World Health Organization, you know, that all of us will contribute to these, you know, like the United Nations. The United Nations has been completely inept over this period. Like they, they've done nothing. And it's obvious that um, it's, every man for himself kind of thing. Yes. And even in the United States, it's every state for itself. At least we don't have that here. That's what I'm saying, that we've done a much better job. Although Alberta and Quebec would argue that point. <laughs> when you yeah. look at it, they go, yeah, no, that's not the case. It is every man for themselves, what it feels like when you have a conversation with somebody from Alberta versus somebody from Quebec, all interesting in, in that regard. Well, but in Quebec, it's a good thing they've got the feds breathing down their necks because they were about to open up all the schools and they've got double the number of cases in Ontario with much lower population. So, I mean, imagine that. It would, I mean, kind of scary. Well, you make an interesting point as just a conversation around this whole thing, which is goes back a little bit to you know, supply and, and, you know, do we take on a, a, you know, is that, is, is that potentially where the growth of Canada lives and in, in taking some of that manufacturing back into our world and, and not outsourcing it and having to deal with the, the wage structure, the wage, the salaries that are, are, you know, that, I mean, ultimately that's why so many things left Canada, same as the U S because corporations, you know, companies could get the labor much, much cheaper in other countries. So we talk, bring that back. But there is some, I guess, from when I look at what's going on in the U.S., it it's like they get very regionalized, don't they? they? I mean, there's like, to your point, there's just disparity between different U.S. states. I mean, gosh. Uh, and and do, we, do you think there's a possibility 
you you make an interesting point. I mean, there could be disparity between provinces that get, that is that grows stronger too. You know, there there's that possibility that it does get worse than what we think it is, which isn't probably all as bad as we think it is. But but the the difference is the equalization payments between provinces does not happen in the United States between states. And the other thing in the U.S. that, with some exception, is the governor's party, whether he's Democrat or Republican, seems to be um, paramount in determining whether Trump will send aid or not send aid. And um, that is all, it's a very scary thing. Mm -hmm. It's a very scary thing. In fact, just this morning, um, the Republican convention is supposed to be in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the Democratic convention, the Democrats have said, we're not going to have a convention. You can't put a thousand people together in a convention center during COVID. And it's going to be, you know, it's like, are you kidding? So, and, and it's supposed to be in August, right? So that's not very long from now. What Trump has just said to the governor of the Democratic governor of North Carolina is, if you won't commit today to a thousand people in Charlotte, North Carolina, in your convention center and all the hotels around it, going out partying and, you know, in the bars, in the restaurants, then we're moving the Republican convention somewhere else. And you know there's going to be some Yahoo in Alabama or Mississippi that says, sure, come on in. I mean, that's just crazy. But that's that's what's going on. So you've got a situation where the economic and the political and the health are like, you know, it, it's like, Who's in charge here? Where's the leadership? Well, it's it is going to be an interesting. You know, there's a, a I do follow U.S. politics to a degree, but you know, there's a really strong conversation. I can't remember who put it out. It was a podcast or a YouTube podcast I was listening to, and the individual was really clear. You know, the Democrats right now own the narrative, and Republicans are being money driven, and republics the Republicans because of that conversation is all about economy it's not about people the republicans have put themselves at a huge risk and it's not the right conversation to be having at a time when people's lives are potentially at stake uh yes economy is important and but he just made a really a really interesting point which is as a leader you have to have that compassion for people and republicans don't have it they just they're, they're right off the charts and they're going to get annihilated is what the conversation is there. Right. Well, unless for some strange reason, like it all depends, right? If, if the economy is rebounded by November, it would have to be by October, really. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, I would never count Trump out because I could never believe he'd be elected. So I would <laughs> yeah. get wrong on the whole thing. <laughs> Uh, I, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't count them out. That's for darn sure. So let's come back a little bit to Canada. So I want to talk a little bit about where your view, you know, there's been a strong argument that Canada, based on what the banks are doing, based on what's happening economically, we've got unemployment rate that is, I believe, understated at 13 and a half percent, because that certainly doesn't include all the business owners and all the, uh, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs who are, who are never, 
who would never qualify for uh, uh, EI situation. There's an argument for being a strong a nation of renters because of that. In other words, people aren't going to be able to qualify. They're going to have to rent. You're going to have individuals that have to sell their homes to actually get from underneath that mortgage or to get liquid. Uh, as you said, cash is king. Those are decisions that are going to be definitely be made. How do you see it? I actually see the 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 potential of you know families having to move in together if this thing doesn't come out. Like you know, uh, for example, you know, you, I mean, your son and and daughter in law are, are are good, but I'm saying is that you know what boomers having their kids move back into the house to be able to afford to exist in this world, like so multi-generational family coming back together because it's a necessity in terms of even surviving. Do you see it that, like, that's a pretty dark picture, but do you see it that way? No, I don't. Um, Maybe because I live in downtown Toronto and there's so much money and wealth. Yes, it's going to be terrible for graduates now. You know, try and get a job now. It is terrible. And so, And there are certainly examples of people that are, you know, relying on the bank of mom and dad more and more. And um, but but we still have 66 percent home ownership. Forty percent of Canadian homeowners have no mortgage at all. Mm -hmm. And that gets lost in the mix. That's a pretty and that's a pretty impressive number. I mean, 48 percent own their home outright. Right. And 58% of Canadian households have virtually no debt. So we always focus on the aggregate household debt to GDP, but it's, it's, it's not all households. It's, it's the minority of households that are overly indebted. Like, and the Bank of Canada estimates that about 12% of households have debt that is 450 times their household income. Um, So it's that group that are heavily indebted, but they're typically young, you know, they're they're young families. And then who wasn't indebted when they were young, right? I mean, when I first bought my first house, I remember we would pinch pennies and, think like, holy cow, how are we ever going to survive this? And interest rates were a whole lot higher. Now prices were a whole lot lower, but still. So it's all relative because your incomes were a whole lot lower than today's starting salaries. So uh, will everyone own a home? Of course not. And that's not always, you know, in Europe, many, many uh, countries have much lower home ownership rates than Canada. But, you know, we've always prided ourselves in wide open spaces and the ability to own our own home. And I don't think that psychology has shifted. Let's face it. If your parents owned a home, why shouldn't you want to have a home, too? Now, not everyone will afford it, but it's still in in the psyche of Canadians. And renting as well. I mean, there's lots of millennials that are delighted to live in city center, not own a car, walk to work, you know, that, you know, that kind of lifestyle. Now, once they have kids, are they going to still feel that way? Maybe, maybe not. But that bodes for the developers to create rental properties 
or condos that you could raise a family in that have playgrounds, not just gyms. Yeah. That kind of thing. Do you, you know, there's, um, you know, there's certainly discussion that's happening. We, over the course of our weekend and uh, what we did, what we called was an SOS event and SOS being strategies, opportunities, and solutions in, in the world of investing in real estate. And one of the things that showed up was, a I don't remember the, what the number was, but there was a, a, a large number. It was like significant in the number of people moving out of Los Angeles and moving into getting out in to, uh, you know, suburbia in way out there and even out of, way out. yeah. yeah. And, and so I'm wondering in, in, in Toronto, do you see that, you know, the millennials, I mean, at that age, we're all pretty bulletproof, right? We, you know, number one, we are healthy generally, like it, the millennials are healthy. There's not a lot of fear around health issues, although some, you know, a very small majority of will have some immune deficiencies, but that's, that's not the, that's not the majority or even close to it. But on the other hand, we've got, a lot of boomers who at some point had said, yeah, I'd like to live downtown and and be able to walk and be part of that vibe. Do you think COVID in that sort of conversation around densification may shift that view? You know, when you look at densification, all some people are going, you know, something small town actually looks a little more appealing to me these days. Yes, especially if you can work remotely. And I do believe that is going to be a factor. Like um, Bank of Montreal announced a few weeks ago that 80% of their 36,000 employees will be working at least part-time from home Mm -hmm. and for the indefinite future. So if you only had to go in the office once a week or not even, why wouldn't you move out and have more space? and pay less money for more. And that I think would be a, a, a really positive development. Yeah, the physical the physical distancing is less of a concern for millennials than it is for boomers. You know, they're like you say, they're pretty bulletproof. They don't they don't feel they're at risk. And and arguably they're not at risk to the same degree. And that's pretty statistically shown. But whereas with a with a boomer culture, of course you're at you're at that age where you are more susceptible. Uh, and so there's that transportation in Toronto, I'm told is, uh, where people are because of the whole physical distancing, they're not getting on subways. That's not a thing that you're doing. Um, any insights into that just because you happen to be in Toronto? Well, right now, nobody's using, I mean, I can't say nobody, essential workers are using public transportation, but the um, usage is way, way, way down. And that's part of the reason why when people go back to work, you know, in the downtown core, they're going to have to have shifts and keep a lot of people at home because you can't pack the trains the way you used to. You can't pack the subways the way you used to mm-hmm. uh, because it's just not healthy. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's that's another reason why remote work isn't temporary. It's things will change. And, and lots of businesses are talking about that now. And a lot of businesses already worked remotely. I'll bet your business as you know, we rain. were, we've all, we, we, for past three or four years, we've had virtual, my team's like right across the country and actually even into, uh, we have an international team of people that we work with every day and it's all virtual. Right. And I've been working virtually from a 
for five or six years. So for me, it was seamless. Like I'm sitting in my office and nothing changed from that perspective. That's not true everywhere, but a lot of businesses, particularly tech-related businesses, have already announced that people can work from home. And that, that changes too, because that means that people will want a different kind of space at home. You know, if you're working full time from home, you're not going to want to be on the dining room table full time. Yeah. So that could cause people to move or, or renovate or whatever. I mean, there's when you look at what's going on and, and as an economist, Sherry, I mean, there's so many pieces to this puzzle that have to be put together. I mean, there are variables that have never been in, in the equation before. It's not like, okay, A plus B equals C. We've seen it a hundred times. I mean, there's an A plus B equals C part of the equation. But I mean, when you start to throw in what's happening in, in supply chain is just one example, what's happening in terms of the health and those issues uh, as an, another part of the equation, when businesses are having to calculate and determine how do they operate their business, it really is a time where you have to look at it optimistically. You have to actually be determined to say, I will evolve and shift to accommodate what I need to accommodate. In other words, you, and you have to take that on. If anybody who's sitting back in in business or in, in life and, and waiting for the government to solve the problem completely and or uh, waiting or thinking that it's going to go back to some version of what it was will be really uh, setting themselves up for some big challenges. This, you you really have to take this on. And as an economist, you're looking at it going, there's so many parts and pieces that have to come together. I'm sure that you're scratching your head some days and you, and I mean, ultimately, like anybody, you're having to say, we don't know. We don't have enough data yet. We just don't have. Is is that the case? I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, yes, of course. And and also, I think anybody who tells you that um, house prices are going to go down by 18% is furious accuracy. Nobody knows. Nobody but knows. I think there's a huge opportunity. I've been keeping a list of the, the businesses or sectors that are winning in this. And I mean, you know, look at Shopify or Loblaws, or um, Lululemon, <laughs> you know, as everybody's wearing yoga clothes to um, to work these days. I mean, it, the, the world has changed. Mm-hmm. And parts of it will, will not go back to the way it used to be. Mm-hmm. And anything that becomes, in fact, I think that people will feel Stultified being in a traditional bureaucracy, nine to five, forced commuting and tight, you know, crowded spaces, all of that. Not gonna happen. There's a there's a there's a number of people that I'm hearing and friends even that I have that are actually excited about what's going on. Now they're not happy about COVID, but they're going, right. this is an absolutely epic reset. And we have an opportunity to reconfigure, reconstruct, and literally reset what we're doing in business, what we're doing as a culture, what we're doing as a country. And they're actually, they're taking it on as an exciting time. And yes, there's going to be some pain points for, for even perhaps for them, but for many. And, but we, we too, you know, we'll get through this as well and we'll come out the other side better for it. That's the view yeah, that many are taking. I, I'm one of those people. Yeah. I think that people realize that why they need to be healthy, you know, why they, you know, they. it's like everybody needs to keep feeding their minds 
and their bodies healthfully and, you know, continue to exercise and continue to be, you know, conscious of what's going on in the world. And anybody who's afraid of a technology is done. I mean, even my mom is using Zoom, for goodness sake. Sherry, I love love that you made that point because, you know, you're making a really valid or a really significant point, especially for anybody over 50. I'm surprised at how many 50 years old that are still like, I don't know how to reboot my computer. It's almost that bad in some cases. And you cannot be that. My brother-in-law is a lawyer, my sister's husband. Like they go into his office every day. My sister, they work together. Um, because he has only paper files. And so if they can't work remotely. That's shocking, is it not? It is. Crazy. Yeah. And so, that you know, there's a really, really, I mean, it, you can live in denial or you can get on the technology bandwagon and know that you have to take it on and you have to embrace it. I mean, I'm blessed because I've got a, a you know, I'm 62 years old or about to be 62 years old, but the you know, I've got a very young, aggressive, technology-driven team, and uh, you know, right. so so I I'm I'm in it every day anyway. So I'm I'm kind of fortunate that way. I look at what Rain has done. You know, imagine you know, and we're a national organization, national community, and we were doing live events. So every month we were doing three, four, or five live events, and now we because of our background, we pivoted immediately. Within days, we were up running virtual meetings to what we delivered just this past weekend and hundreds of people and breakout rooms. And and what here's what people are realizing. I don't have to fight traffic. I don't have to park. I don't have to rush home from work. I can be get the education I want, get the economic fundamentals that I want, all the analysis, all the things that we deliver on, and I get to do it from the comfort of my own home. I don't have to arrange childcare. I can sit and have a beer and, uh, you know, and uh, eat my dinner while I'm paying attention to it. And so it's like this cool, this works. And so there's those things that everybody's going to have to look at and say, where can you do that in your life, in your business, in your job? And, uh, it's a, it's an interesting time for sure in that regard. Right. So Sherry, let's talk a little bit about Sherry as we kind of come to wind this down. Now, it sounds like what I heard earlier on is you're, you're like an accidental economist, you know, that, and, and I mean, that was many years ago, you had your PhD, like what was she, what, what was going on in your mind when you're coming out of university or when you get your PhD, like what was your thought? Pro- Did you have a different well, career? Actually, I took my first economics course because it was offered at 10 in the morning. And like, literally, I had a hole in my schedule and I didn't, you know, I was a city student. I commuted from home, which was horrible. And um, I, you know, I just wanted all my classes in a row, get them over with in the morning. So I took an economics course, never had an econ in in high school. And I loved it. I, I loved that it was rigorous, but it was about psychology and sociology, and it was all the things that I thought mattered. So I switched my major, which you can do in the U.S. I was already at the end of my second year, but I switched my major. And uh, as I took more courses, and I really loved it, a professor said to me, you ought to go to graduate school. Well, I'm the first woman in my family to ever get a college degree. So what's graduate school? Like, 
had no clue what that was about. Didn't really know what an economist does except the, you know, teach, right? That's all I saw. And, um, and I had no means of paying for it. And they told me, no, you can, you can get a fellowship. And so I did. And honestly, and I just decided that, hell, I love this subject. And if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And so I went through the, all of that drudgery and it was unbelievably hard. It was probably the worst period in my life was graduate school because you're so stressed out. No money. I was a teaching assistant and uh, I made $490 a month, no, $450 a month. And my rent was $190. No discretionary income. I'd go out with anybody who would buy me a steak dinner and take half of it home for the dog, which was really for me. Um, and so, you know, poverty-stricken graduate student. But uh, it was way worth it. I didn't finish until I was 27. So that was when I got my real job. But uh, it was so worth it. And, you know, the rest is history. What was your life growing up? So, you, you know, you mentioned that you were the first one to get a degree, a college degree in your family. Um, no, first woman. My dad first woman. was okay, a lawyer. We, um, we're, all four of my grandparents were immigrants. And um, my father was a lawyer. We were very definitely not rich. Mom was a homemaker, which is very typical in our generation. And uh, my sister and I, I'm, I'm the older one, she's three years younger, but like my father's was very strict and his, he said to me many times, the role of a woman is to get married and have children. Mm. And I, he, he wouldn't let me go away to university or to even live at school. And he insisted that I go to this all women's college in Baltimore called Goucher College which was one of the seven sister schools. And it was a hotbed of radical feminism. Ha ha on you, daddy. <laughs> so it was a little bit of a pushback. You, you know, dad pushed the button and. Oh uh, my God. <laughs> you not believe it. You know, like what you want to do? What? It's like I rebelled by being a great student. Who rebels that way? But in my family, that was rebellion. I want a PhD, Daddy, and you don't you don't have to pay for it, so you can't stop me. <laughs> That's so awesome, but but it also kind of plays into you know that really was set the tone because you know you're you're of course you're a strong woman. I'm sure you're a huge advocate for women overall. You you, right. you you know you're really wanting to support that, and it all can kind of be linked back to Dad pushing your button a little bit when you were younger. Is that? <laughs> Interesting how right. life unfolds, isn't it? And what about your mom? What did she what did what did she do? Well, she, you know, she's very proud of me, but you know, she still doesn't like she wants me to retire, my mom. Uh, like, why don't you just, you know, because we have a home in Florida where she lives, like yeah. right literally, we're in the same development. And she wants me to spend more time down there. And I was like, Mom, it's boring. I don't want to retire. Mm -hmm. And and so she's still in the old world and gives me a hard time about it. And it, it's funny because I guess, you know, I have a son and I have two grandsons mm -hmm. 
And I love men. It's not like I'm anti-men at all. And I just don't understand why people think it's healthy to retire if you love what you do. Yeah, I'm on the Freedom 95 plan. I love what I do. I will never retire. And uh, I'm just having way too much fun. I just love what I do too much. I love my team. I love our community. Yeah, I totally, I'm, <clears throat> I'm on that same plan. I don't, I don't ever see stopping. It's, and I like working with young people. Mm. It's fun. I mean, when I go to the DLC, um, have these conferences, always like the last one was in Cancun every other year. It reminds me of Burns Fry's Christmas party back in the day. Oh my God, corporate debauchery, crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I'm by far the oldest person there. Um, but it's fun to be with young people and it, it's, it's just energizing. Keeps you young. Keeps you young. Tell me a little bit, you know, like if, you know, for, for the audience that's listening right now, my wife, Stephanie's, you know, has similar qualities to you. You know, she's, you know, she worked in a man's world. She was a coach in the NHL. She did like a skating coach. She worked with, yeah, she did like some really, really big, big things and was a real pioneer in that regard. Now, the thing about being a pioneer is it's hard work, you know, back to, you know, your, you know, when you're back in university days and and doing all the things, that's hard work. But being a pioneer is hard work. You walking in the office on the 68th floor in a pantsuit is hard freaking work, you know? Yeah. Giving 150 speeches a year is hard work. Right. Traveling everywhere. I used to go to um, Japan once a quarter. Uh, I mean, I had terminal jet lag and I had terminal fatigue. Mm-hmm. That's why I finally said, I gotta, I gotta switch focus here because I don't want to be pushed around the world like that with no, you know, inability to have any flexibility. As a female though, you actually stepped up in a man's world. So in other words, you know, you're a, a, a a female in a man's world, even especially back in those days, I'm assuming in the banking world, that's a kind of a good old boys club. And so you still have is. It still is. Yeah. So, you know, what guidance are you giving young women, perhaps, or women in general? Uh, is there any guidance you would give them? I mean, I want to tap into a lot of experience and, and for the listeners on this podcast, many women, any, any tips, guidance, Stand your yeah, ground. What it's do you got? always the same. It's look, you got to be so good at what you do that that they can never question your credibility, your credentials, and be true to yourself. I mean, don't don't ever compromise your ethics and your integrity, mm. and work your butt off. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's it. It's really. I mean, I would say that to young men too. Sure. But but for women, you have to gain respect. Unfortunately, you have to prove yourself, and and it's harder if you're proving yourself in a man's world. But whatever you you do, and there's so many fantastically capable women out there that I think more and more, you know, we're breaking barriers. But anybody who thinks that it's all done is wrong because look i mean would we have a female prime minister in canada for about 10 minutes yeah and never a female president of the united states and so it's still it's still tough 
And also women, let's face it, we if you want to have children, that's another part of it that, you know, you still, and, and when I did it, I was home for only three months because there's no mat leave in the U.S. And, uh, and that was hard. And I, I'm, you know, I, I was always feeling guilty when I was at home. I felt guilty that I didn't do the work that I needed to do. And when I was at work, I felt like, oh, my poor, my son, I, and I missed lots of stuff because I had to travel for business and I traveled almost every week. So, but the good news is he turned out great and he loves me. So we're <laughs> <cool>. <laughs> good job. Good job. Do you, do you find, and I'm just, I'm just curious in this conversation and in, in that, I think it's such a great topic because I am, I am such an advocate for really powerful women's doing what they do. Cause I just see it. I see it every day. I'm blessed to be married to somebody who's done it for many, many years, but do you find yourself ever kind of bitter about that sherry like do you, does it just piss you off sometimes going what the hell like you know you're you're looking across a boardroom table and you may be the only women woman at the table maybe not so much today but i mean you've probably been in that scenario many times do you walk away and how do you not be bitter and pissed off about it on any given day i'm not, I'm not bitter um in a like personally because i've i've done so well mm -hmm. so how could i be bitter i'm i'm so blessed yeah. but i what i can't stand is men who don't get it like, or women for that matter yeah. but like when a guy is so clueless anybody that's just being a jerk yeah. i i just like Go away. Yeah, that even know? pisses, as a guy, that even pisses me off. I, I can't even be, it's hard for me to be even in that space. And then I'm also frustrated by women who minimize themselves, who actually play small, and they're really smart, and I'm going, quit playing small, like, step up, you know, like, do it, right. you know, and they right. don't for those reasons. Anyways, we digress. That's uh, It's really interesting. Uh, Sherry, I've had a lot of your time, but uh, so as we wind down, um, I have a, a what we call, what I call rapid fire questions. Just something to kind of finish off the uh, off our podcast. Okay. What's a book that you're currently reading, or one that you gift often? Do you gift books? Or um, I I was thinking about that because I heard you ask um, Gary that question. I don't give books to people. Firstly, I don't even buy books anymore because I read everything on my iPad. Mm. Um, are you, are I, you an I'm Audible? Are you an audible person too? Like, do you, do you do, do you do? Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Are. yeah okay. And I listen to podcasts too. In mm -hmm. fact, especially now because I have to do housework, which I find excruciatingly boring. <laughs> so when I'm folding laundry, I'm listening to podcasts mm -hmm. or books on audible yeah. and it's really made a difference. Like I've been scrubbing floors. Like I have scrubbed more floors in the last two and a half months than in the prior 30 years. I promise. I swear. <laughs> But That's I'm like, awesome. I'm a germaphobe now. So like I'm constantly sanitizing everything because we do live in a condo. And so, you know, anyway, so um, I am reading, uh, I'm on the fifth book in a series of mysteries by Tana French. And I do read, uh, she's an Irish author and I am um, a bookworm. And I read 70 books a year. I know because I keep track on Goodreads. So you're, uh, so do you, so you read, you read lots of fiction. 
Yeah, as I well. love fiction. Oh, you love fiction? My escape. That's that's my guilty pleasure. Oh, is, great. Nice. That's how I relax. That's Last night I made a huge mistake. I listened to Fareed Zakaria's um, Coronavirus Expose of China right before I went to sleep last night. <laughs> and it was on from 9 to 10. And I had a horrible night's sleep. Because it was it was awful. I mean, it was so scary. And so normally before I go to sleep, I read fiction because it, it's like a different space entirely. I, you know, it doesn't disturb my sleep. It's perfect. Always been an avid reader. So that's just kind of me. Yeah. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? I mean, I can tell you what I used to tell my my little boy, who is now no longer little. Um, you know, if you think you can, you can, and yep. and if you can conceive it and believe it, you'll achieve it. But that's, I mean, all that is who I am, and it's like if you tell me no, you can't do that, I'll do it. Because like that's what my that's the legacy of my father. Mm. And that's not, it wasn't a good thing. Although my husband said that it did me a lot of good, but it, it wasn't a good thing because his middle name was no. Right. No, young lady. Anybody who ever called me young lady, <gasps> the hair on the back of my neck. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, if you weren't an economist, what would you be doing, do you think? What would you like to do if you weren't being an economist? Oh, man. An economist, what would I like to be um, I'd like to like anchor a TV show mm. or something. Sure. You know, ask a million questions. Like doing what you're doing. If heaven exists, what would you want to hear God say when you arrive at the gates? Good job. On a scale of one to ten, how weird are you, Sherry? How weird? Yeah. Scale of one to ten. Two. I'm not weird. Room, I'm not commenting. I think that you're not weird. <laughs> I just set myself up. So anyways, though, I don't think you are. I agree, too. It would be good. Room, desk, or car? What do you clean first? Desk. Do you have a favorite tune? No. Favorite movie? I love Gone with the Wind. I love it because it's the only movie I ever saw alone with my dad. Hmm. Like in the movies. The two of us went because my mom had seen it 10 times and my sister was too little and I went with them and it was like I was madly in love with them and felt like I was on a date. Do you have a particular routine in terms of what do you do to look after yourself mentally, emotionally, spiritually, what you know, physically? Do you, are you a morning person that gets up and has to do a run or do your journal? What's some of your, what are some I'm, of your practices? Um, I'm definitely a morning person. I work out every day. I, right now my passion is Pilates and um, I love the reformer, but, but I can't do that now. So my Pilates trainer is, um, I Zoom with her mm -hmm. and with a couple of other women. And uh, I love that. And but I've always been very active, but not in a competitive way. I don't, I'm not, I don't want to be better than other people necessarily. I just want to do my thing. When I was working at the bank, the Adelaide Club, our health club was right downstairs in the building. So that made it possible. 
um, reading, reading fiction is my meditation. It's my escape. And I write so much in my work that I don't want to journal, mm-hmm. except when I write my goals. And then I'm very deliberate about once, you know, January 1 every year, thereabouts to set my goals for one year, five years, 10 years. One time I read my goals to my son and and he said, but mom, those are goals for me, not for you. Because it was like I was like focusing him (laughs) (laughs) to achieve all the things that I thought he could achieve. But now you you seem to uh, you seem to have a pretty kind of you definitely got a clear and strong mindset. Do you is there a, a personal growth, professional growth kind of mindset? Have you studied that in your life or is that way the way you are by oh, nature? Yeah. I've read a million self-help books of different sorts and listened to, you know, back in the day when I would be stuck in traffic going to work every day, when I had, you know, when I used to listen to tapes online. So I listened to everybody. I mean, I, I could have like an hour's worth a day at least. And... um they're all the same things that I always believe, which is, you know, it's all about your mindset. It's all about, it's a head game. Like I ran a marathon for my 50th birthday. And when I was training for it, I realized it's not about my body. It's it's my head. It's like, if I can just get through the pain, because it's obviously painful, that, that's all. It's determination. So I, I remember actually running it I in my mind I would play this presentation I was making let's say I had 80 slides powerpoint slides and I ran them backwards through my mind because it was hard to do it backwards so it kept me occupied not thinking about how my feet are bleeding and I really want to be I really want to stop running so I'm convinced that if you think you can, you can. As a leader, is there a fundamental philosophy that you kind of attach to, to be a great leader? I think I'm, I'm aspirational. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I see that as being part of every aspect of my life. Like, like it matters how I look, how I feel how I behave in in terms of um, making people believe that they can have whatever it is they want, whatever their dreams are. And as long as they're willing to work for them, because there's like, there's nothing, there's no free lunch, but, uh, and I, I liked it BMO that I could inspire young women and young guys. They were plenty of economists. Almost every economist on Bay Street worked for me one point or another, even David Rosenberg. (laughs) So there's a, there's a part of that where, you know, you walk your talk, you know, you actually set yourself up as in leadership, but sounds like Sherry as uh, an example by, by you live what you talk about. Like you, you literally walk your talk in terms of being a leader and, and showing up and uh, working hard and there is no free lunch and we want it to be easier than it is, but it's not, it's just what it is. So if, if you, if you, if you don't want to, you know, it's, it's like, it's like, I once had somebody ask me, you know, Patrick, how many hours a week do you work? And I went, 
gosh, I, I've never even, I don't calculate it. I just do what I do. It's my life. You know, I don't, you know, I don't punch a clock at 8 a.m. and say, oh, geez, it's five. How, uh, I got to start charging overtime. Like, it's just my life. And because, right. because I love my life and because I love what I do, it all just kind of blends together. It's just all part of who I am and what I do. And, and it sounds a little bit like that's, you know, foundationally, you've learned how to look after yourself so that you can do that. You know, so you can have, you can work, it could be 60 hours a week, but it's not, you're not looking at it that way. And I think it's just a, an an interesting perspective that many don't have. And that is the gift of doing something that you love to do. And also like seeing personal maintenance as part of that. And so I remember thinking when I was um, early in my career that I needed to look successful before I was successful. Mm. So I would invest in in nice clothes and and always keep myself, you know, well groomed, etc. Yeah. I never went to the office with dirty hair or no makeup. I just never did. Now that's old fashioned. Mm-hmm. I mean, many women today don't do that. And in fact, I find Canadian women more than American women who wouldn't dream of that. But uh, to me, it was like. It took me an hour at least to get dressed every morning when I had to be in the office by 7 a.m. And, you know, getting up at 10 to 5 isn't fun, but it's like just what I did. But that's the discipline that you did. And I mean, you're you're very, very successful in, in, in all, you know, not just financially and what you've accomplished, but I mean, you've also built a great life and, and that's all about what success is about and, and putting in your time and doing that is, is part of what you did. I, I'm, you know, I think you make a really good point and, and this is a conversation I've had many times with, uh, particularly with women, because as moms and as generally the nature of being a caregiver, they they put themselves second or they put themselves third or they they take themselves out of their universe, the center of their universe. And this was something that was taught to me, you know, many years ago. I actually, I, I coach uh, young men sometimes going, I'm going to give you a gift and here's the gift because they're married. And I go, the gift that you have, and this is my wife taught me this and I see the impact of it, is you make sure that your wife slash the mother of your children at least every month, at least once, goes to a spa, gets all the things that women love to do so she can recharge because she's the center of your universe. You need to look after her. You know, like as much as you baby your car because it gets you to work, you better look after your wife because she runs that house. She looks after those kids. She looks after you and you need to keep her recharged. And and I think, you know, women in general, because of their nature, uh, that genetic predisposition, if you will, uh, you, you make a good point, which is you have to look after yourself. You have to be the center of your universe so that you can deliver on all aspects of who you are. And you did that in your business. You did it in your life. And and it's just a, an interesting point that I, I don't want to step over. So I, I appreciate that that insight. I think it's a good one. Sherry, last question. What are you grateful for? Everything. Everything. I mean, I, I've been so blessed. I'm just, you know, I have a wonderful husband. I have wonderful kids. I mean, life, I, I love Canada. I, I had, you know, the genetic material, like I had great people in my life. 
So all that is terrific. And I'm just like, honestly, sometimes I, I pinch myself that like, how did this all happen? Because I sure didn't plan it. I mean, I didn't plan to be an economist. Who plans that, right? Yeah. Everything's serendipity. <laughs> My husband, we've been married 32 years. He, 33 in June, he called me one day because he read about me in a magazine. It was a report on Business Magazine that it was called Move Over Boys. And it was about five women on Bay Street. I was a single mom and my son was like seven years old. And it had a picture of me playing with him and then a picture of me and the other women. And one day I was in Tokyo on business and 1987 when the stock market was crashing. I come back and my assistant said that uh, this guy, Peter Cooper, called and he said he wants to have lunch with you. And I thought he's a client and he was going to talk to me about the markets. And, you know, we put it in the calendar, November 5th, 1987. We go out to lunch and I really liked him. But, you know, so what? I'm a single person. I when I remember thinking, I have not looked in the mirror since 6 a.m. this morning. I better go powder my nose. So I excuse myself, go to the ladies' room after we were seated in the restaurant. I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing? This guy is probably married with three kids living in Mississauga. Why am I, like, caring what I look like here? And we sat down, and he's from South Africa. He'd only been in Canada a few years same as me. We didn't talk about anything except where are you from? Where are you from? What do you do? What do you do? You know, how he lived in the U.S. for a number of years. Where did you live? Blah, blah, blah. Finally, we get to coffee. And I said, so Peter, why are we having lunch? And he said, because I wanted to meet you. And we were married six months later. Wow. What a cool so, story. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, You're welcome. So I mean, I didn't even plan that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a there's a, a really strong. You know, one of my favorite you know things that I go to is is your life's a reflection of who you are, and as long as you're staying true to your values, integrity, all of the things that you talked about just, re just briefly ago, is that our our life is a reflection of of who we're being, and if we're really digging our life, then we're just being true to ourselves because that's why life is great. And we attract who we're being. We attract the people into our lives of who we're being. You know, it was interesting that uh, I'll make this comment about you and Peter because I did have the opportunity to have lunch with you one day. And one of the things that stood out as memorable, and I do remember that lunch, yet it was whatever it was three or four years ago, four or five years ago, was who you and Peter were as a couple. You know, now Peter was pretty quiet at that lunchtime, but he, he oh, yeah. he's, you guys are connected. Uh, it was so, it was it, like, you know, you guys would be the proverbial quote unquote, uh, you know, power couple, but I could see that connection and who he was for you in the support that he was for you. Like I could literally feel it and see it. And it was, uh, it was very, that was a memorable moment for me. So it was interesting to, to share that. So now you share that story, which I didn't know it all kind of makes sense. So He's quiet, circle. but man, he knows what he wants. Oh, he's you know? no, no doubt about that. No doubt about that. <laughs> well, Sherry, what I'm grateful for today is to have had the opportunity to uh, certainly to interview and have this conversation with you and get to know you a little bit better. Thank you so much for what you brought. I'm also uh, grateful, like you, I'm grateful for being in Canada and 
and uh, being on Canadian soil and having the, the woman of my dreams as my wife and uh, children, a couple of grandchildren. So that's that's awesome. It's an awesome place to be. And uh, yeah. if, if shit hits the fan everywhere else, I got all of that that I'm very, very happy about and I can stay grounded yeah. in that. So, Sherry, thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate it. You're welcome, Patrick. Thank you. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.